podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the weekend, and what a weekend it is uh, to come. We've got James Milner, he plays for Liverpool. We've got Jamie Webster, he sings the songs about Liverpool. We've got Greg Evans from The Athletic, and he talks about Aston Villa, so sadly the thing doesn't sustain. But with me in front now to talk about Liverpool against Arsenal, the 5-all and 5-4 on penalties, victory for the Reds, and then look ahead to Villa as well from a Liverpool perspective. It's Lizzie Doyle, it's Stu Wright, and it is Josh Sexton. And Josh, first and foremost, Liverpool 5, Arsenal 5. It was... A game that wouldn't sit still, that got away from everybody uh, at some point during it. Um, it was quite something to think when they scored to make it 5-4. They've gone 5-4 too early. Uh, it was genuinely what went through my head uh, at that point. And it, that's basically what happened. I was convinced that game was going to go 6-4 or 5 all, and 5 all was the way it went. It's funny, isn't it? You, when you think about that game last night, you almost you almost harken back to the early days of Jurgen Klopp, where where he promises sort of heavy metal football, and everyone thought it was going to be so gung ho when we we were beating Norwich's five four away and having all these mad results against against you know really poor sides to be honest, and and that's that's what Arsenal were last night. They they were they were a poor side. They were slightly rotated from the usual, but still a, a, enough sort of Premier League quality there to to you know have seen the job through, and, and and Liverpool's kids sort of absolutely ran them ragged, and and the sort of personification of that performance me was Sead Kolasinac who had to go off in the end and was and was constantly signalling and waving at Arsene Wenger, uh, Arsene Wenger Unai Emery to take him off uh, because just he'd just been legged everywhere by Harvey Elliott and he resorted to kicking him and then he got booked and he thought I just don't fancy this anymore it was it was strange from their back four, Stu. I mean, this is a back four that you know have all taken to the taken to the pitch in Premier League games. And yeah, you can say that of Milner uh, and Gomez from a Liverpool point of view. But they're also a back four that have been playing Europa League matches for Arsenal. And I couldn't believe how ropey they were, how quickly. I mean, it, the tone set by the own goal. But right the way through the game, you know, Sepp Vandenberg's got an excuse. It's the first time he's done this, if you know what I mean. I'm looking at Holding and, and Mustafi and Kolasinac. I think Bellerin gets a bit of a pass coming back from injury and I actually think he plays quite well. But the rest of them, I'm just looking at them on that. They're absolutely rubbish. They really should not be that bad. Couple of things. Um, first of all, I just want to say how proud I am as an educator that Josh has used the word personification so early in the show. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was really like one up for Josh. Um, when I, he set a high bar. Um, second one is, I'm to be honest, I, I, I'm really struggling um, because of the amount of goals last night. It's like, do you remember when? Before there was mobile phones, and all you had to remember when you when you remembered people's phone numbers was the seven digits. And I never had a problem remembering people's phone numbers with seven digits. And then all of a sudden, it's gone to mobiles, and I can never remember anyone's. I can't remember my own if someone says it in, in a different way. And last night, because we've, there's been ten goals, I'm struggling with the whole thing to put it all together in my head. But I, what I can say in answer to your question is absolutely how garbage Arsenal's defence were. I mean, we had some excuses there, change of positions, lads from the youth team. Lads who've I'm not even sure have been born yet playing for us, and we've you know they've got a, a a change team, but a bunch of internationals, and I mean it was just it was embarrassing. I mean I, I heard some Arsenal fans after the game talking, and that was the word they kept using, just embarrassment, and it, it really was. I mean people like Kalasnich, they've you know they've, they've, he's had a good career. You know he's an established Premier League player. He's played in he plays in um, Serie A. Classics. He was playing in Germany. Oh, Germany, Germany yeah. Schalke, I think. Yeah, you know he's played to a good level. He's got a bunch of international caps. He has. They also had you know didn't he have Rob Holden playing? Yeah. Yes. And you know you listen to Arsenal fans earlier on this season, and they've been 
describing it as as a big hope for them now. He's you know he's through his injuries and what have you. You know they're, they're kind of pinning their hopes on that he's going to be the main lad in their, their back four. And it was just a shambles, an absolute shambles. I mean, I, listen, I know we our back four wasn't the greatest last night. So you can't really give too much away there, but ultimately, like. When you compare, like for like for appearances and and what have you, it's just unbelievable. It, the Arsenal players weren't the only senior players on the pitch who struggled. I think both Oxley Chamberlain and Kaita, possibly off the back of an injury from a Kaita point of view, and Oxley Chamberlain. Let's be clear about this: does absolutely thump one in Lizzie, but neither of them really got hold of the game in the first half the way you would have liked. I think that that's the that maybe Klopp's frustration is that both of them just seem a little bit absent. Yeah, I think you're giving Lallana a bit of a free pass there as well. I think he should have done a little bit more overall. Maybe it's because he's tired and he's not used to playing a full 90. I thought towards the end he was lagging and he was losing the ball a fair bit, weren't he? But I agree. I thought Keita was rubbish. I thought he was awful, actually. Uh, And like you say, it might be due to injury. I don't know whether it's a case of he's usually playing playing in a completely different team. I don't know. Uh, and Oxley Chamberlain, it just felt like he was giving the ball away a lot. And when I looked at the team, I thought, actually, as much as we might say it's completely changed 11, we've got like five senior players there. We've got the midfield three. We had Joe Gomez. Um, James Milner. Oh, we had James Milner, yeah. And I'd actually put Deva Harigi then as, as a senior. That's six. Um, and the, the kids actually put them a little bit to shame, I'd say, especially first half. Especially first half. And then the substitutions... Um... Josh, I, I, th- I think Curtis Jones comes on. He just changed the game and he runs the game. I think it's a, you know, it's a real sort of coming of age performance. And I'm sure he, and maybe he was in part motivated, frustrated to have been left out after his performance at MK Dons. But he comes on and he ends up sort of occupying two or three different positions. Does so across the board with Panache. Really impressed with him, and then eventually scores the key penalty. Yes, it's something that I really like about Curtis Jones from from seeing him sort of come through the academy in, in the last few years. He, he just seems to play with this real sort of it's, it's a real confidence and a swagger, and it's it's almost bordering on an arrogance in terms of it's it's almost like a positional arrogance because he just he just seems to sort of play where he wants and and he, and he he lets the game take it where wherever he wants to go, and and that's that's such a good quality to have in a young player. You see it with Harvey Elliott at times as well. He's just you know it's almost like the ball's attracted to Harvey Elliott. Sometimes you've got lads there pinging you know 50 40 yard diagonals into into his feet and he's just controlling them like it's nothing and and beating really experienced Arsenal defenders as we've been saying but Curtis Jones yeah I, I just thought he was he was he was great when he came on and, and it was so nice for him to get that moment at the end as well because you feel like it, especially in the last sort of year and a half he's had he's had quite a tough time at Liverpool and I know there's been some quite frank conversations between him and him, him and some coaches at the academy from from things that Neil Jones has said uh, to myself and John Gibbons on on on, a, on our one for the future show um, and, I, and I know that he's he probably you know his, his development wasn't going the way he, he'd sort of hoped it would be in, until this point. So I think it's it's nice for him to get that moment and to sort of almost get that taste of of you know what it is to be a first team Liverpool player. He, Josh, the way he conducts himself, it is it is as a first team Liverpool player. You know he comes on. He's part of the reorganisation of the shape. He moves people around a little bit. He's t- very much telling people where to go, telling them to get away from him. He wants to get the ball. He wants to to play into space. I, th- I, I think it's, a, it's such an accomplished performance on a night where everybody, one way or another, was losing their head in different ways. And I'd include Oxlade-Chamberlain in that. I'd include James Milner in that. Curtis Jones doesn't lose his head. Yeah, and I think you know it's, you can probably say it's a benefit of him being on the bench, but then but then I'd argue that you know it's 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 his reading of the game because I think you know last last night and it's it's completely understandable given the team that we played. It's probably the first time that you've seen a Liverpool team really lack cohesion. You know, you see James Milner uh, selling Kelleher short with the pass. There's a few times where lads sort of get in each other's way or are bumping into each other, and you, 
can imagine if you're Curtis Jones sat on, on the bench, you know, you're watching that as, as a sort of, as almost a passerby, you're looking at it and thinking, you know, I could be doing this in this position, I could be doing that and I could not be getting in this person's way and telling this person to move, like you've said. And I think in, in that sense, I made it probably easier for him to dictate the game, but still to do that at, at the age he is shows, you know, the head that he's got on his shoulders. He, he looks physically stronger as well. You know, I, yeah. I've, like Josh, you know, I've, I've had... Um, my eye on him a little bit over the last couple of years. I think what pre- was it last preseason where he, he he had a few little cameos and not the one just gone the one before, wasn't it? And mm. exactly what you said, Josh. You know, in terms of that that arrogance he had on the ball, um, but he didn't look physically strong enough at that time. But last night, I thought he did. I thought I thought he looked, you know, every inch like a, a really viable option as a Premier League player. He looked to me like a, a lad who's, who's going to have a Premier League future. Hopefully that's at Liverpool, um, but he, he certainly looked the part. And I think Pep Linders, a press conference pre-match, I could have almost, I think, his monologue where he was talking about our identity is our, our intensity, and, and he spoke at length about how the young players, it's not just about the talents, that they've actually got a, it's what they do without the ball, and how our, <coughs> how our front three what they do without when we lose the ball is incredible and it gives the platform for the whole team to play so high up the pitch and I think he could have almost been saying that directly to Curtis Jones and, and Ian Brewster last, you'd have thought by looking at the performance last night because I thought both of them worked themselves into the ground <clears throat> uh, and they, they showed a side so both of them actually that, that I'd not seen before really and how hard they were willing to work for the team how much of a shift that they were going to I mean Brewster at one point he was literally just throwing himself into blocks all over the pitch chasing everything down um, and I, I think yeah, again Brewster I, I think has, has probably give the coaching staff and the manager something to think about there again as a, a potential viable option going forward Do you know what amazed me about Curtis Jones is He's one of those names and as someone who doesn't really watch the young kids but only really maybe pays attention to them in pre-season, I felt like, oh God, this lad, like before he played for MK Don, uh, against MK Don, so this lad's been knocking around for ages. You know, Elliot comes on the scene, he's new and exciting. You hear loads about Bruce and I was thinking, is Curtis Jones still knocking about? And I tell you what, he's completely proved me wrong the last Mm. two games. What was so impressive about him coming on, he's coming on in a different position to the game he plays in before as well. He comes in more central. He's so calm and collected. He comes on and plays like a 25-year-old lad who is, he's on the pitch, like I say, with senior players and he's there going, give me the ball and I will make a move and I'm going to determine where this ball is going to go. And to have that head on, yeah, to keep that calm, to be that substitution, by the way, who needs to make a difference. He comes on and he gives an assist for the goal, doesn't he? It's a great assist as well. It's a brilliant assist and I think he's done excellent and I think as much as the penalties is crown and glory, he, he needs to, I think that whole time that he was on the pitch, he, he changed it. And I think a shout out to um, Pedro Chiravella as well, who, who come on and just co- like constantly asked for the ball. Uh, I think he helped out with like uh, Lalana's legs a bit, really. Well, there's something in Stu the extent to which they ask for responsibility. I think that's what's most impressive. And I'd throw Brewster in there as well. You know, you can you can look at those footballers and you know between Brewster, uh, Elliot, uh, Jones, Chiravella when he comes on, as as Lizzie says, and Williams. Not one of them shirks responsibility. Not one of them doesn't want to be in the action. Not one of them doesn't want the ball right now, and not. And, and, and happy to do ugly stuff with it as well, you know, not just the idea of, oh, I want it when it's easy. They, they all wanted it when it was hard. And I, th- I, I think that's the testament to them. And on top of everything else that they show in the game, all the good touches is just constantly each and every one of them saying, I want to be responsible for the action. But it's, it's a culture that I, I can't express 
how important it is the, the the culture that the the coaching staff and the academy staff have, have put in place now and they've they've demonstrated that there are, there are potential pathways but also that they're not going to tolerate any kind of drop in performance any kind of drop in in attitude or you know self selflessness really that you know we, we we've got to be selfless um and allow to put, to put the right platform in place for the team to to play in the in the, in the way it does um and I, you know we've scored in I don't know what was the 95th minute last night mm-hmm. um and I, that's something you expect to see at the first team now I just think it's just not a coincidence at all that, that, that that's permeating right through um, to the youth team and to these young lads now. I think that they're so clear on what the expectation is uh, and that they will be held accountable, um, it, you know, because they're, they're putting on the red shirt. Um, so it's it's a massive cultural shift that and that that doesn't happen by accident. And they're obviously learning that from from the more experienced first team players as well. You mentioned mm-hmm. Pep Linder's press conference before Stu, and he he sort of names a few names of, of the lads who you know you'd be looking up to in the first team. I think he basically names the the four captains: so Henderson, Milner, uh, Van Dijk, and Genie. And, he, and I think he throws Lana's name in there as well. And I think it's no coincidence. That, you know, there's enough of them lads in that team last night. But then there's also a few of the lads who've who've captained the 23s and captained the 18s. You know, mm-hmm. Curtis Jones won the armband, Ryan Brewster worn the armband I'm pretty sure I've seen Nico Williams wearing the armband for the 18s as well they're, they're all you know from such young age you know watching these footballers play for Liverpool and, and thinking you know that, that's my dream and so how do, I, how do I go and obtain that and they've got the best examples to follow in them lads I think the, the last part um, Bruce has been touched upon briefly but the, the, the last real praise there between Brewster and Origi is the extent to which they just go and play like proper centre forwards. Josh, old school centre forwards, put the body in the way. Wasn't what I was necessarily expecting uh, from from Brewster at times, you know. But he's terrific in terms of holding the ball up, bringing people into play. As you said before, at, at some one stage, just charging around, working and, and grafting back and throwing blocks and tackles in. He's he's done himself no harm, I'm sure, in the grand scheme of things. But for me, it's more than that. It's that idea of him being a, a footballer for all seasons, not just the ones where goals are, are, are there to be had. Yeah, and I think at times I've maybe been guilty of, of, of trying to put, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, by the way, but I've been trying to put Rian Brewster in a box as, as though, oh, he's this type of forward, he's, he's, he's this type of player. And, you know, that, that was that was coming from a positive place in pre-season when, when he looked like he was almost trying to play that Roberto Firmino role, you know, dropping deep to receive the ball, chasing after men, chasing after lost causes, diving into tackles. And, and then he was probably lacking that in the MK Dons game. He seemed to be wanting to play more off the shoulder and that seemed to frustrate him more. And then his body language didn't, didn't you know, look as good. And, and I sort of hate you know, going into body language things like that because I think for for the most part, you know, we're all just lads watching the footy and none of us can really tell much about it. But it was it was a frustrating performance and I think he'd be the first to admit that as well against against MK Dons. But it was a complete contrast to the one last night. I, I remember what, what Stu was saying about the point where he was just throwing tackles in and I think he just lost the ball you know, just before that. And if you're a young lad and, and you lose the ball, you know, it, it can be the temptation there for, for your head to go, especially when it's late in the game and, and, you, and you're losing to a side who, who've got more experience than you. You can just sort of turn around and go, oh, you know what, it's not my night. But he didn't, he, you know, he, I think he ran about 20 yards and he dives into one tackle, doesn't quite win it, dives into another, throws his body on the floor to get in the way of the <laughs> ball. And that's exactly what, what you want to see from him. You know, you, you maybe won't see, you know, floods of goals this season and, and the things, you know, you, you almost want Rian Bruce. You won't see that sort of instant success. You know, he's not, 
not he's not ultimately in the results business right at this stage because he is such a young age. But the main thing that you want to see from him is is that determination and that mentality. And I thought he showed that in abundance last night. Uh, quick word for their two goal hero. Um, looks an absolute player. I'd say Lizzie uh, Martinelli looks really bright, really smart, smart penalty box striker. But then we've got one of our own. Uh, Divock loves a big goal. Uh, the bigger the occasion, the more it gets out of hand, the more Divock's going to come to the fore. Uh, two late goals there. Martinelli, excellent. Divock Origi is never going to get stopped by anybody. Oh, he's, I, I just love him. Like I, I, I'm not even going to try and make some sort of like big analysis of him because I don't think you can. He's just mad. Um, and it's one of those where I feel guilty that when I saw the Joe Willock goal, even then, I mean, what time did he score that? Like, how, how long was left in, in the game? There's still about 20 minutes. There's still about yeah. 20 minutes. But weirdly, I felt guilty as it was getting to like 80 odd minutes. I was thinking, it's not going to happen for us because it just felt like that type of goal which you go, oh, I'll hold my hands up. But I'm forgetting that Divo Harigi's on the pitch. And of course, Divo Harigi's going to pop up and keep you in the game and take us to penalties and give those kids the best nights of their lives. Um, also, just other than being Divo Harigi, thought he played really well. Like it was a great got second him, half. Oh, he was brilliant. He got himself about and he was just muscling people everywhere and really involved. And I think he set an example as well. Um, and I thought he'd done himself a really good service. And um, he's just Divo Harigi and he's ours. And I absolutely love him. I think that's the thing though, you know, in terms of... Um, he had an opportunity last night to be a leader in the team. And I think often, you know, he'll come into the team when he's playing with two outs of the, the usual front three. And he'll, he's like the understudy. He mm. sees himself that way. You know, he's not necessarily going to impose himself, uh, per, you know, as a personality on those around him. Um, but I think he did last night. I think, he, you know, he, he saw himself he as the elder statesman it, alongside Brewster, you know, uh, and uh, Harvey Elliott. And he did revel in it. Yeah, it was lovely to see that side of him, I think. I think uh, on Tour and Reds, Garrett said to me, he went, I'm not having it that Divoriki knows what minute that was to, that he scored the goal. He said he's just so laid back and so relaxed that actually he probably had no idea what time it was. He was just thinking, oh, there's the ball. I'll just stick it in the back of the net and all's fine with the ball. Well, I think that's one of the reasons, one of his great strengths is actually I think he's, I think he keeps his cool when a lot of other footballers don't. And I think that that's, you, I think there's a lot of evidence for that now, to be honest with you. And we, you talk about almost the nonchalance and the celebration, but I think that's part of it. And that he, he doesn't get emotionally swept up. And there was a lot of footballers last night who were emotionally swept up in that football match. And Divock wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. When you look at a celebration on this one, he just wants to go and say, well done to Nico Williams. He's just scored yeah. a, a 95th a little, minute over like, a kick. Yeah. He just gives it a little one of them and then says, I'm going to go and have a nice little chat to Nico now. He's done well all game. Fair play to him. And you're thinking, surely there's some sort of moment of, Almost a little bit of what about me in there, but that doesn't come. It's not to be seen. It's you know, and I, um, I do think he does sort of keep himself emotionally sort of separate to a lot of this, and that's one of the reasons why he's such a big player in the end of games when everybody else is swept along. Um, very quickly, the manager's comments, Stu. I, I, to me, one of the things about the post matches, it's obviously in his mind. It's obviously been on his mind. He mentions that they've had conversations, and I think this is the frustration of the club as articulated by Klopp about when are they going to play the quarterfinal of this. There's still not a date for West Ham away, hasn't been confirmed yet. And you get the impression that Liverpool, since June, July, have been saying to people, this is going to become a problem, and no one's been listening. Everyone's been kicking that can down the road of saying, well, let's just see if it becomes a problem. And I think that that's a bit of frustration that ultimately this should have been dealt with. No one's dealt with it. And now you know, it seemed quite clear to me Klopp was like, well, one of you, you're going to have to deal with it because we've been trying to say we want to deal with it, but you're going to have to deal with it now. Yeah, I felt like it was the only reason he did the press conference. I, I felt if, it, if, if he didn't have that clear message that he wanted to give over this, that would have been 
unfair to send Linders in to, to give. Then I think he, if he didn't have that, I think he would have stepped aside. Linders did the pre-match. I think he would have. I think there's almost a little bit of development of Linders going on here. You know what I mean? And and I think you know Klopp would have happily stood aside and let let Linders take the glory there and and give the post-match talk. Um, but I think there was only one clear message that that Klopp wanted to give last night, and was you know it was one in the eye to. So the people in charge of you know putting these fixture lists together and running the players into the ground, um, everything else, you know, he, he he just laughed at everything, didn't he? And said, "What a great time he had." He had no no clear message in regards to the performance. Too much, in fact, he said, "You know, even the goals we can see the mistakes are." I'm not really bothered, you know. Well, that's for another day, whatever. But what wasn't for another day was the message that he wants to give over those fixtures. So, um, I, I agree with you, Neil. I think that they've probably been banging the drum for quite some time in the in the um, in the background now to the Premier League and and anyone else who listen. I think it's probably one of the main things that Pep uh, Guardiola and Jürgen Klopp agree on. Uh, I think they're, they're probably fairly united in these kind of conversations that they're having with the authorities, and they're just not getting listened to. I don't think it's necessarily even the idea of fixture pile up, Josh. I think it's the idea that no one's planned. I get the you know Liverpool, you get the impression, and I'd say Manchester City planned so meticulously, and all the way through they've known that Liverpool have known since June when they've been told they have to go and do the, the World Club Championships. Uh, they've known since then that they're going to have to at some sort of point find when they're going to play West Ham. Well, Jurgen Klopp probably probably doesn't understand why don't I already know when we're playing West Ham away because we could plan for that then and I could begin to put that into my overall plans now and now he's got this other game where no one's got any sense of when it's going to get played at this point. There's talk that there's exchanges and people are doing back and forth and the EFL are now speaking to Liverpool and I bet you there's part of Liverpool saying, well, you could have spoke to us in July about what we were going to do about this and that's the impression I get. It's as much that as the idea of you're making these lads run too much because I don't. those players who play the other night are going to almost certainly play against Villa in the league Cup, I'd be amazed if not. Yes, I think it's just it's just interest to protect for for, for Jurgen Klopp, isn't it? You know, it's it's you, you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there. And I think Stu's right. You know, there is there is a degree to which he doesn't want to be running his players into the ground. He, he wants to have a plan for for a bank of fixtures. I know that we as fans probably get do get obsessed a bit with banks of fixtures, but I, I don't imagine that the manager doesn't sit down with his coaching staff and, and looks at a sort of in July, group, in yeah, July, yeah. A, a, a group of fixtures and says, well, this is this is the plan that we're going to have and, and try to execute with with this the, with this bank of fixtures. You know, uh, obviously fitness permitting. Injury permitting, but the, the for the for the league and and the EFL and whoever else is in charge of these fixtures, it's obviously all about the the sort of TV scheduling and 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 the, and the sort of money that surrounds that, isn't it? Because you know we've been, it feels like we've been having these conversations about you know in, in relation to fans for ages that fans are getting done over by kickoff times and things like that. But now it's it's literally the clubs getting getting done over by kickoff times and, and you know they're literally not being days to play these fixtures. So it's all just a bit of a shit show. And, and, and hopefully you know Liverpool can be one of one of the leaders in 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 that field in terms of you know making a change for the future. I think his comments last night I don't think were about winning this battle. I think his comments last night are about winning the next one and the one mm. after that. He's, he's making a point. He, he took the opportunity last night. There was a platform that he had last night to go, look at this. Look at this mess that we've been pointing out for ages. Look at this mess. And I, I think I, I think it's a good opportunity. You know, if Liverpool do withdraw from a competition, which I don't think they will, but if they did, I think there's... It's a statement, isn't it? It is. It is a, it is a statement. It is. Um, so I, I think that's what last last night's comments were about. I think it's it's not about you know this particular fixture. It's about winning the longer term argument. 
Okay, uh, thank you very much to Stu, to Lizzie and to Josh for all of that. We'll be back very, very soon to chat about Aston Villa away now. The one that we know will take place on Saturday at 3pm, not the one that we've got no sense of when it will take place, but at some date in the near future. Uh, that is all to come. We've also got James Milner, we've got Jamie Webster and we've got Greg Evans to talk about Aston Villa. We'll be back very soon. Delighted to be joined uh, by Oliver Kay, uh, James Milner, and even more delighted to be joined by Ian Ryan today. <laughs> That's not true, is it? Um, no, we're here to talk about, uh, privileged to be joined by James Milner to talk about his new book, uh, Ask a Footballer. Um, I mean, just just to start off a bit, it's what struck me, we've, we've read through it, and um, you, you stress in the book that it's not an autobiography, but my impression of it is that I learned far more about, my impression is I learned far more about you as a person than I have done. Maybe other footballers also about that I've read, I've read previously. I mean, was that? I was kind of. What was your your thought, thought process, process going into the book? Because it's very. You give away. Do, do you think that you give away a lot more than what you originally intended when you started it? Not more than I intended it. I think. I think that was the decision when it was. Do we do the book? Obviously, it was a great concept and idea. But step by step, giving people a bit more of me off the field. You know, the social media was one step, and then obviously the book's the next step. But it was important that we kept it as Ask a Footballer to me. I didn't want it to be about mostly about me. I wanted to get that balance right of the footballer general and uh, in general um, questions people wanted and, and try answer it, a general answer on what it's like to be a footballer. But then I always think it's good to then hear stories or experiences of someone who's been through it and I could relate that then to times in my career so I was trying to get that balance right in terms of maybe 60% ask a football and 40% me but yeah it was a, it, it, that was the decision then is obviously there's going to be more details about me and my thoughts and obviously I'm still playing as well so I'm maybe able to be a bit careful on a, on a few things that Ollie, Ollie were, you, were you surprised once you, once you got into the book I'd obviously you've read the concept and what it was going to be about but just how much character is in the book I think I would have been very surprised sort of three or four years ago when, when James was sort of typecast as boring Milner and, and you know, we, we would sit in England press conferences with him and press conferences at Liverpool and Manchester and he would very often have his arms folded and be uh, be kind of visibly uh, visibly not enjoying it. Um, he, he mentioned himself, he was like, you know, rolled out like a night watchman. On to straight back to, 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 to straight back the questions when, when in times of trouble um, on England duty, of which there were many. Um, but I, I think we've probably seen over over the last few years since he sort of announced himself on, on Twitter with the famous ironing board picture <laughs> that, that, um, that, no, he's, he's got a great sense of humour and he's, and he's, you know, he's, he's a good laugh and, and likes to, um, likes to, uh, show the other side to him without without making it all about him and without you know, probably putting too much out there because I think there's a lot that he probably holds back. I mean, the, the one thing I did want to ask you because with, with the start, the, <clears throat> the detail in which it goes into when you start in your career at Leeds to where you are now is is incredible. It's an eye opener. It's insightful. It, 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 I've read things I never would have thought or thought, and the, the perception of how footballers live. But what I wanted to ask you was. I mean, obviously, a lot's changed since you made your debut for Leeds, um, but it's kind of a drip-trip effect because you've had a long career. What do you think has been the, the single biggest change? Because you detail loads, and what do you think has been the, the single biggest change in football since you started? It's hard to say. One, I think. I think it has changed a lot, and I'm probably lucky that I've been part of both eras, if you like, old school and new school, so that's probably a privileged position I'm in. I think probably attention to detail, I think, in terms of diet and and 
taking the blood and weights and supplements and the amount of people who work at a football club now compared to the amount of people there now, how many sports scientists you have, how many physios. You know, you were lucky back then to have like one masseur in the club and now you have three or four and physios, back specialists, all these guys. So I think the attention to detail, I think social media uh, um, and the things that have changed in terms of that attention to detail, the amount of interviews you're doing, being out and about, you know, people see social media, they see the interviews, they think they know you and build up a perception of you, a boring Milner or whatever. And, and, and that, that has changed a lot. And, um, you know, the, the, you know, I think, was it Jermaine Jenner or someone like that said, it was like living in a bubble when he was at Newcastle and things like that. I think when you go out and, you know, camera phones and things like that, you know, you know, that I am that old. It's, it's changed a lot with the amount of people, camera phones and, all that side has changed things and the younger guys coming through have it a lot easier in some ways but on the other side there's a bigger spotlight on them from a very early stage. On the um, the nutrition piece, because that kind of flows through the book, the nutrition piece, the sports science stuff, as a 16 year old breaking your way into that Leeds first team, were you even conscious back then that you had to kind of look after yourself, you wanted to live the life correctly off the pitch because you look at some players and maybe Wayne Rooney's example, who was a similar age to you, only three months difference in age, and different body shapes, I appreciate, but maybe when he got to his early 30s, there were signs when he was struggling maybe to cope with the physical demands of the Premier League, whereas you appear just to be getting stronger and stronger as the seasons go by. Yeah, I think um, that credit probably goes to Leeds Academy, and there's some Steve McGregor I'm in contact with now, who, who worked at Leeds at the time, and he got us in the gym and had us on programmes from very early, and and aware you're coming in at 16 you have to be strong and and you have to bulk up and you have to be able to deal with that physical aspect um you know you look at pictures now of how young i was how big the shirts how baggy they were <laughs> you, you, you left school you're doing your gcse yeah. and then you're playing with with men it's it's a big you're used to playing with guys at your age group and you're stepping up so you had to be able to deal with that um and then obviously the alcohol thing and it was just a decision i made and you know, I think I said in the book, everyone knew how old I was in Leeds anyway, so if I wanted to go, I think I feel the, the <laughs> nightclub no I was panicking a bit, yeah. like Matt Kilgallen and that used to go, I was like, he hasn't been in here, was he? Like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that was a decision that I made, and, um, yeah, just tr- try to look after yourself the best you can, really. In terms of those, and you talk about physical demands there, but actually in the book you say how difficult it was to maybe cope with scoring that goal in the Premier League at 16 years of age, Mentally, we are prepared for for what that brought in terms of the attention it brought on a on such a young lad to do what you were doing in the Premier League. Now the world's watching it; it's one of the biggest leagues in the world. How difficult was it to cope from a mental point of view? Yeah, it was a big change, and and as a person, someone who probably didn't crave, you know, some people play and they want to be famous and like that side. That was the opposite to me, I think. But yeah. You learn to deal with that. I was looked after very well. People around me, my family, um, the club were fantastic. Thing kept me away from the media. Drip fed me in with local journalists who they knew even if I slipped up, they'd look after me. And we talked about Wayne Rooney already. He probably helped. I think you yeah. know the, what he was doing at Everton at the time. All the limelight was on him. Um, so I think I got a lot less than I maybe would have done. So. And, you know, Leeds at that time were struggling after maybe getting to the Champions League final in recently before that. The team was struggling at that time. There's a lot of off-field issues as well. So, 
there was a lot of other things going on at the time that probably did help as well. You touch on your book in, in the book about um, what the culture was like at the time when you're breaking through at such a young age. And you talk about cleaning the boots and dressing rooms and one thing and the other, and you kind of reference what it's like today for young kids breaking through now. Maybe they don't have it as tough. Do you think the ground and I mean, no one can deny the sports science and the, the coaching now is a lot more intense than what it was, but do you think they've lost a little bit of that in today's game with these young, young kids that break through? I mean, obviously, notwithstanding the progress that Trent, Trent Alexander Arnold's made. But do you think that that's maybe going out the game a little bit and not necessarily a good thing? Yeah, I would definitely think that. But like we said before, there is harder things for the young guys to deal with as well now. But on the other side, I think it's probably harder for the players to have an attitude like Trent and, and be like Trent is and, and listening and everything's laid on from them. They're treated like professional players from the start. The, the facilities are incredible. It is, it is going to be difficult for them to then feel like I need to earn the right to be even step in this dressing room at Liverpool and, and train with the first team and 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 have that side because when they're on the field, you want them to have that good type of arrogance, be confident. As soon as they step off that field, like not know the place but look up to the other guys, learn what they can, be humble. And I think doing the jobs like like we had to, I think lets you appreciate that more and helps you get there easier whereas I think someone like Trent with the path he's had and the pressure he's got on him obviously being a local guy and that is a lot of respect for Trent to be able to be where he is and shows his family around and his mum and his brother and people like that and, and the job the club have done because the clubs are obviously trying to look after the players and bring them through the best way as well Come on, go on. I was just going to say you, you touch on the dressing room there and obviously within the book you talk about Liverpool's dressing room and 25, 30 lads, and how unusual it is to find a dressing room, dressing room so unified. It's obviously not kind of your typical kind of thing in football. What I think gets a little bit underappreciated is just how this Liverpool team has coped with adversity at times. So when they lose that final in Kiev to Real Madrid, but then they go on and have an unbelievable season, 97 points, a European Cup win. Who's driving some of that? Is it very much the senior players, or is it a collective? And, and how much kind of part does the manager play in kind of, I suppose, getting those people to suddenly believe that actually it's not the end of a journey, it's only, it's only the start of it? Yeah, I think it starts with the manager. Obviously, he, he sets the tone, he puts the messages across and what he wants to do, and then it's the job probably of the senior players in the dressing room to relay that message. And, you know, the manager needs to know everything, but there's times where, as players, we have to take control in that dressing room as well. And hopefully if we can take that job off his hand making sure everything's sorted in the dressing room players are happy if things need to be said amongst the players I think there's times for that where um, the manager's giving so many team talks he's giving messages um, you know when you're hearing it from the same person all the time sometimes we need to get together as a group of players shut the dressing room door and we have a conversation on mobile between us about what might happen or our thoughts is there anything that people might not want to say in front of the manager which they can say to us and we can sort it out so that comes from our experience as players and, and great captains I've worked with and under and, and things like that I think that's important and Hopefully, you know, Hendo and, and, and Virgil and, and Dayan and Adam and, and myself and the senior guys in the dressing room, hopefully we, we help the manager with that. And it's important that you do that because, you know, once you cross over that white line, the manager can't control that. It can impact as much as it can and he's jumping around on the side and doing as good a job as he does. But we have to sort things out ourselves at times as well. And 
um, that's so important and the likes of the younger guys coming through like we said Trent and things like that they need to be in an environment where all they do is concentrate on the football as well because like we've talked about there's so many distractions for them as well Ollie, just back to the book briefly, and, and I know I asked James about the differences between when breaking through and, and where we are now, but from your point of view, because you, you're an experienced journalist now, you've been doing this for almost as long as James, been playing football for longer, longer. longer but, um, so, from, from you your... look younger than that. Well, you know, there is a... But from, from, <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> now, now. It's because my brilliant nutrition regime. Well, I was going to say, I wasn't going to say, um, from your point of view... From going back, chronicling uh, James's career in particular, um, from the outside, how much has it changed for you as a journalist? I mean, it, it must be. Uh, did, did writing the book kind of take you back a little bit? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I mean, yeah, we spent time at James's house doing this, and we spent hours in in um, in Evian on the um, on the preseason training camp, and you know, it was it was great to have just that that time sitting down with a footballer and just sort of asking normal questions and. and yeah, um, probably wasn't so great for for James, but but, but he was very he was very patient. But the, but the, the the thing is, I I I became a journalist in the late nineties, just when things were about to change, really. So I had a couple of years of uh, like my first job was in the Nottingham Evening Post, where you know they were a Premier League team, the Nottingham Forest at the time, um, and you could just walk down to the training ground any day and grab any player, and you'd and you'd end up you know interviewing them for. 10, 15 minutes or whatever, and you'd, you'd have all their phone numbers and, and all that kind of thing. And then I, I moved to Manchester, and it was the same at Manchester City, but Manchester United had just sort of started to put the barriers up. Um, they'd just won the European Cup for the, the, I think the, I don't know how many times they've won it, but... Um, the, uh, no, I'm joking. Um, the, um, the, um, so United were changing things. They, they had a press officer, they, you know, restricted access to the training ground. I think that was... Sort of similar time to when James came in, so James would remember when things were a bit more open in terms of journalists sort of hanging around the dressing room. Outside on, the on, door, on, we left, on, we left on, to go to the car out, out yeah, yeah. at Thorpe Arch, and you'd come out of the dressing room door, and there'd be a few people waiting, like a mix zone every yeah, day yeah. as you come out of the play's entrance at Melwood. That's when it was. But, 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 Leeds, but Leeds was good for that, you know. We, we'd, we would go up to Leeds a bit for you, but, but it was yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was probably. Probably by that stage they couldn't afford a, a, a you know a press officer, but it was um, the um, it, it was like word kind of got around the Premier League clubs that you know that, oh, you don't have to do that you know you can you can put the barriers up and it's and it changed massively um, over a very short time and then I would say um, the last few years there's, there's I think it feels like things have opened up a little bit more in some ways I don't know whether it's you know. Social media and players are a bit more willing to open up and consider their, you know, just project themselves in a different way. And I, th- I think there was a massive paranoia around the England squad, media-wise, when when James was playing. And you know, it was like you know the, the thing that we talked about that the, the um, every press conference was probably seen as a damage limitation exercise. Whereas now, you know, I think Gareth Southgate has encouraged them to. To be really open, Jurgen Klopp really encourages the players to be open because that's what it was like at Dortmund and Liverpool are um, Liverpool really set a sort of high standard in terms of media engagement and being access, open and accessible to the Fantastic. media. Fantastic. Uh, one final one from us, James. Um, yourself and Jordan Henderson are quite close. 
and you kind of seen as like the stoic face of, of Liverpool and almost like the team's leaders, so to speak. Can you talk to us about the, the final with Slim Madrid? Because normally you see images of you and, and Jordan and it's always quite, not po-faced, but determined. But there's, there's photographs you then just at the end of the Barca game as well where you, there's like this release that you don't, you don't quite often see that side of you. I mean, how did that feel? Yeah, every time you talk about that Barcelona game, obviously you get the hairs up and it was it was a massive moment. Obviously, I think what had happened in the build-up to the game, being in Barcelona first leg, not playing badly, having chances and losing the scoreline we did, you know, could have been worse in the last minute as well. I think they missed a good chance. Then you have a tough game at, at Newcastle where you're trying to keep the pressure on to win the league. They gave everything and we won that late. Great character. Then you have the City game night before, hoping for something to happen, and, and Vinny slices one off his toe and goes top bin, the only time he's ever done it in his life. <laughs> and all those things, then you go into a Barcelona second leg where no one probably gives you a chance. All those things adding up, and you think, Champions League final last year, we've lost heavily in the first leg, we've got to come up against an experienced Barcelona team, big deficit we've got potentially the chance to get 97 points and not win the league. If we don't win out this year, can you come come back from that? So you've got that feeling then of, you know, you hope something happens, but we all know how difficult it is. And <coughs> Everyone was pretty calm going into the game. The manager pulled us in the, the day of the game. We had our meeting, we trained more under the game. We had the meetings like, Gaffer said, anyone want to say all about last night? Because obviously it was like the big elephant in the room and no, right gone let's get on with it then and you know some of the things he said in that day is like you know it's, it's pretty much impossible to turn this game around if it was anyone else but because it's us and because it's Anfield there's a small chance and I just thought the manner around the game you know we scored early but it wasn't let's go gung-ho it was methodical they got danger obviously going forward I think the tone was set before the first whistle when I think there was talk in the media about Louis and I'll get a great reception and stuff like that. And, you know, the Liverpool fans obviously appreciate and love him as a player and what he did at Liverpool, but the Liverpool fans were, do you know what, mate, not tonight. And that was the thing I got straight before kick-off here in the whistles. I thought, here we go. And we got a corner, I think, first minute. Um, and the raw, just for getting a corner, you know, I don't normally notice the, the you, you, you know, when you're playing in a good atmosphere and stuff like that, but there's one raw and I was like, wow, one of the, the biggest I've heard and for a corner especially. And, um, you know, we got the goal and like I say, just how we played the game and, and goal, here we go, here's another one, Genie come on and, you know, you look at the players who were missing on the night. And you look at the guys who came in and again goes back to the job the manager's done of you can change that those players and players come in and play the same style and, and play in the way they did. Losing Robbo after, you know, um, how good he's been all year and, you know, ruffling messes there and things like that. And then um, change round again and Genie coming on, the impact he had. And then, you know, we all know about the corner. I've been talked about a million times, but how good a player he is and, and seeing that opportunity and, and that's what the manager encourages. You know, we have all the set plays, but if it's on off the cuff, can we do it? So then the final whistle, it was just the relief of, you know, we could still win somewhere. This season's not going to die for anything and goes back beyond that. Europa League final, League Cup final, Champions League year before, 
and reasons why I, me personally I've come to the club you know want to win something and it's massive playing for Liverpool a massive club that history you see all the photos all the legends who have played but you want to contribute something to the club and to put a European Cup on the board you know unbelievable so that release at, at full time and you know it's funny Hendo Hendo had his knee I think and <laughs> looked over um, I think he was in tears at the time or whatever, but he, he's gone and knee slid, done do, do a knee slide to the fans and forgotten he dirt his knee. So his knee's got caught in the ground and he's in agony on the floor. And it was, it was just one of those things, you know, we all know how hard we work and, and every single day and the ups and downs and what the fans pay to go to every game and follows around Europe and the ups and downs they've had. So you've got to enjoy those nights when they come. And yeah, I always think the Dortmund game is pretty similar as well. Then he last one quickly. On that, when the final whistle goes in Madrid, how long does it take just to sink in? Is it immediate or is it, you mentioned the book, you're having your breakfast with the European Cup the next day. Is that when it suddenly you realise, I've done something here that so few have done in the history of the club and we will be talked about and remembered forever? Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes it still hasn't sunk in, you know, people say, oh, European champions in interviews and stuff like that, I think. It was weird because it was comfortable, even though they had chances after the, the, the second the second goal. Once that second goal went in, it was sort of, you know, it, it's done pretty much, even though you're still in the game and that. It, it just felt comfortable. And then obviously after the final whistle, and my first reaction was, you know, we were at that side of the pitch was the Spurs guys. I knew what they'd be feeling. We'd done it the year before. So you try and find the right words to them, you know, sorry or unlucky or whatever, you know, not going to help. And then I turned around, there's no one at the Liverpool end of the ground and there's like all the Liverpool fans. So I was like, sod this, I'm off up there. So <laughs> I went up there and gave it the big six and, you know, that release again of putting one on the board. And then I looked over and seen Matty McCann at the side of the pitch crying, crying his eyes out. It was just one of those moments, hilarious seeing it and just went over to see him. And, you know, it's like you say, people are going to talk about it for a long time. But as a squad... The mindset is we don't want to be known as the team who won that one European Cup. We want people to be forgetting what we won and what year we won it. And then that's the exciting times. And it's a great place to be at this current moment in time. What a way to wrap it up, James. Thank you very much. Ollie, Ian, fantastic. Ask a footballer is out now in all good books, bookshops, stores, webs, whatever they call Whatever they sell books now, it's there. £20, published by Quirkers. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Cheers. And it's John Gibbons for The Weekender, and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Jamie Webster, who all of you will know surely by now, not just because he's been in the Anfield a few times, but also um, you know the, the videos and the performances, and hopefully you, you've seen him live over, over the last sort of few years or so. So, But yeah, welcome back anyway, Jamie. Always nice to be here, John, especially <laughs> sat so close to you. <laughs> we are close here, yeah. We, we've bunched up, we've got tight, and, and we were here to talk about you know music uh, this time, Jamie, because obviously we've had you in talking about the boss phenomenon and, and what that's been like and, and how that's taken from from Liverpool all around the world and, and how sort of enjoyable that is to, to, to take sort of Scouse culture. But now you want to bring a bit of your own music to the party and it's going well, isn't it, first of all? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I've always been like a songwriter. I've always written my own music. When I was like 14, 15, 16, I played in bands and stuff like that. Fell out of bands and fell into the football and then that's where the boss story takes its toll. But in the meantime of me doing all the boss nights, obviously I've been, I've shared so many unbelievable experiences with different people yeah. in and out of football. And, you know, I've I've met some great people and I'd, I've also, like, you know, I've been a working lad all my life. I've, yeah. Up until now, I've worked as an electrician since I was 16. You know, so... Me, me music, like it does it, it 
basically, I I think music should be like a reflection of something you've seen or something someone else has seen close to you or something that you think, you know, yeah. it's, it's a part of you, basically. And so I've always written songs, you know, based around different little circumstances in my life and my friends' lives and my family's lives. And I mean, I'm a lyrics man myself. I, I love like, like Bob Dylan where a song tells a little story and you can yeah. sort of put an image together in your head and... It's always been listening to football has been great, but my me, me lifelong dream since I realised I wasn't good enough to be a footballer <laughs> was that uh, you know I wanted to be a music musician and I wanted people to sing my songs back to me and hopefully like I'm making the right steps towards doing that now. Yeah, I mean you, you must be pleased with the reaction it's had so far. I mean there's only so much obviously out there at the moment. I know you you're busy in the studio working on more, but generally speaking, you started introducing your own music into the boss nights, which is a bit of a risk, isn't it? Because people are coming to hear the Liverpool stuff, yeah. and it's a bit like, oh, here's one of mine. But but people were into it. People responded well, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, well, I think the, the lucky thing for me with with the boss nights was that people, as well as people buying into the Liverpool side, but they're also buying into me as a person. I suppose when well, say buying in, but you know, yeah. You know, they were open to the idea of me as a person and, and the type of lad that I was and that I represented them and everything else. So it was only a matter of time for me where I was, where I was going to drop in a couple of my own tunes because I'd played them to a couple of my mates and stuff and I'd had a decent reaction. And, mm. you know, your mates are your biggest critics, aren't oh, you, basically? Yeah. So, you know, to get a decent reaction out of my mates was brilliant. So I played a couple at the boss nights and I think the first one I played was This Place, which is on the demo that's available now. I think there's 10 left. Um, like a limited edition demo, but and that went down like a storm, obviously, because it's about it's not particularly about the city of Liverpool, even though it's got references to it. It's about you know, not forgetting where you come from and how where you come from has molded you to be the person that you are today and everything else, and you know, but always be proud of that sort of thing. And it went down really well. I had you know, I played it by the third boss night in some of my gigs in the half, I had some of the lads singing lyrics yeah. and that, even lads I didn't know, you know, and it was. So boss feeling for me, and then the single that's coming out on Friday, I can't wait for it, is uh, Weekends in Paradise, and I actually played that for the first time at Talk Tonight. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. In memory of mental health last year, and I got a great reception from it. Like People were like, what was that song? Who was that by? You know what I'm saying? Well, that's my, that's my song, Nan, and so that was nice, and I've just sort of... That song just gained momentum and momentum just throughout last season, basically, me doing my boss night gigs and even me cover gigs in the pub. Sometimes I played the Slaughterhouse and I'd just play it. Yeah. And I'd judge the reaction off the, the people in there and it's a very mixed crowd and people were dancing and jumping up and down and asking me who the song was by and everything else. And it was just brilliant for, it was a brilliant feeling and yeah. that, that, that was when I knew that, you know, that's going to be my single and like I have got something here in me, my own songs. I think it's a song that really resonates with a lot of people and I think your music does generally, but I think that that one, it sort of continues this kind of brilliant tradition we have in this country of, of people singing about working class culture and, and, and kind of what it means to be young and sometimes a bit skint, but just determined to enjoy yourself really. And I think that, you know, you hear it in bands like The Jam and then Oasis. You know, I really like the fact that I mean, Noel Gallagher talks about live forever. He said, that, you know, all these all these middle class bands talking about how sad they are. We had nothing, but we sung about living forever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, exactly. and we'll see things they'll never see. And it's and it's that sort of spirit that that I think comes across in your music. Is that you know what this is this is where we live. This is the place that we're proud of. You know, and 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 we want to enjoy ourselves through through sort of thick and thin. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's just like like I said before, I've been a working class lad all my life, and. 
you know, all the people around me have always been working class people who always work very hard. And there's also been people around me who can't get into work because they, you know, yeah. you know, they fell short because of, you know, things that have gone on when they were younger and, you know, they've been sort of let down by society. They haven't been able to find work or they've been laid off and stuff like that. So all them things are counting to, like, when the album comes out in, in the new year, it's... It's definitely, it probably documents the, the struggles and escapes of working class life, and I, I can't put it any more simpler than that. Yeah. It has a go at, it has a go at the government. It has a go at, you know, people who really need to pull the finger out their ass a little bit. It has a go at people with just a general bad attitude and a horrible attitude towards things. And then it has another aspect to just thinking, you know what, fuck it, we're here. Let's, let's make the best of it, you know yeah. what I mean, and, and, and enjoy ourselves. So... Yeah, it's. I mean, Weekends in Paradise, I think it does sum up all of that near enough in the song, maybe apart from having a go at the government. But, um, <laughs> yeah, like I say, it's it's just... I One mate in particular just really inspired me for that song. I was He doesn't he doesn't actually go to footy matches. He's one of my mates who I've been mates with for years and years. And he's just... He's the life and soul of the party every every week. You know what I mean? Like every, he's out Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And he's, you know, he's... He's, I'm sure he's got one kidney <laughs> like that. and he just you know what he lives life to the full and he has a good go and it's sort of inspired with, with other people because he knows it's maybe not the smartest thing to do but he's having a good time so he's enjoying it and it's also contrasted with another mate of mine who was sort of it was getting on top of him and yeah. he, he needed to call it quits and it's basically about the contrast of the two and you know, if you're having a good time and, and you can, you know, mentally and physically deal with everything you're doing, then fair enough, enjoy yourself. But if you can't, maybe have a look at the past few years and think, you know, mm. where's it left me? Yeah. And yet, so, but it's basically, it, it puts an image in your head of that when you've had that unbelievable weekend, you know yeah. what I mean? And you probably, at the end of it, you felt absolutely suicidal. <laughs> you thought, you know what, I, I'm not doing it again, but... What a weekend I've had, and yeah. yeah, so I'm looking forward to it coming out. I think the production on it's brilliant. We've done it with Rich Tavy. Oh yeah, yeah. You know he was he did the very the first Stanfield rap yeah. shows. Yeah, in Park Street. Yeah, yeah, and Rich is an unbelievable. He's fan. got a great track record now, oh, hasn't he? Track record's unbelievable. But even to work with, he was just. I've worked with different bands and I've tried to record with different people at different times in the past, and I've always found it really difficult. Mm. And I just went in with him and. We just simplified everything and how it needed to be, and he, he really kept the, you know, the emotion of the record. And I'm just I'm made up without sounds, and it was a, it was a pleasure to work with him. It really was. And only problem being, he's a Stoke fan. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, in all honesty, like he's he's a cracking fella, and he's actually coming to the Gent game. Uh, oh, the Gent home game, yeah. So yeah. I wanted the short to say thank you to him. You know what I mean? So. See if you can get into the Liverpool side of things as well. <laughs> no, I'm really looking forward. And if anyone is listening, like Weekends in Paradise, it comes out on all you know all platforms on Friday, this Friday, the first of November. Yeah. And you know, give it a listen. It's I'm sure you'll like it. You know, share it to hell. Listen, to put it on repeat. <laughs> it, download it. Do everything you can. You know what I mean? I'd I'd really appreciate it because it give me a great foot in in the door in, in this new industry but it also doesn't mean that I'm going anywhere with the Liverpool stuff because that, that's what I'm that's that's me that's me bread and butter you know yeah. what I mean at the time being so I'm still here for the long haul with the Liverpool stuff as well so don't be worrying just get behind me 
So the singles out Friday, then Saturday you've got a big gig in Liverpool. Um, it was originally down for the Zanzibar. It's shipping so- forecast. Shipping forecast, mean? sorry. It, it, it sold out uh, in about half an hour, so you had to move it to a bigger venue, uh, which is sold out now as well. Yeah. You must be made up that, that people in Liverpool are supporting you and coming out, because you'd be very clear, I'm doing my own stuff, but people want to come, they want to hear yeah. it, and I think they want to support you, don't they? Yeah, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, really. When I found out that the shipping forecast had sold out, I thought, well... Maybe that's just all my friends and family who bought the tickets. <laughs> but then when I found out it sold out, and then some of my close mates and a lot of were like, you know, we haven't got tickets. So I was thinking, oh, he's right. You know, like, <laughs> go ahead, we'll upgrade the venue. And we upgraded yeah. it to the, the Zandibat. And to be fair, that sold out within within a day or so. It just yeah. went. And it, that was a, a brilliant feeling. And the work, we were going to move it up to the Arts Club to 500. But we thought, you know, for the first one, let's just like... Everyone who wants to be there wants to be there because yeah. they bought the ticket so quickly, and yeah. rather than just jumping on the back of a hype sort of thing, and so it's, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be an enjoyable night for everyone. You know, it's, if you've bought tickets, like I promise you, I'll be, I'll be doing my utmost, you know, my utmost best to make sure you have a good night, and there'll be a hundred and fifty percent effort from my half, and we've got some great support acts on as well, haven't we? You know, we've got a uh, Jack Gilbanks, a young lad who's done a single for mental health. Earlier on, in, you know, in the season, actually, yeah, he's. I've grew up with Jack. I've known him since I was four years of age, and wow. he, we sort of drifted apart as youngsters, and then sort of. It's nice that we've you know come back together a little. Not come back together, but you yeah, know we're doing the mean. same sort of thing, and yeah. we're following the same pattern. He's a good. He's a normal lad like me. You know, he's he's a really good lad. I'm looking forward to him playing. And then we've got Matty from the Shipbuilders. Yeah. Who, you know, I'm a massive fan of anyway, as you know, and I'm I'm. I'm, I'm I couldn't have the shipbuilders as a full band on supporting me because it's just, they're too good to be supporting me as a full band. <laughs> you know what I mean? The sound that they have is unbelievable, but I made up that Matthew's, you know, yeah. happy to do it because he's an, he's an unbelievable musician in himself. His voice is unbelievable. And so for anyone who's, who's coming down to see me, like, get down there early because there's, you know, there's, there's some great local music on show. And, and, and yeah, it's going to be a brilliant night. Me and the wee man are going to be down there. Uh, Craig Hannant. Uh, yes, Craig. <laughs> Saturday night, so, so we'll be there. Just just quickly before you finish, I know you're, you're doing sort of, obviously, gigs outside Liverpool as well. Uh, I haven't asked you, so I have no idea. I know you went to do a festival in Manchester. Yeah. Uh, how did that go? Do you know what, mate? I was really, really nervous about that one because it was in the centre. It was actually in Gate Town in Manchester in the centre. And it was a bar that used to be at... Uh, a Northern Soul Club called Twisted Wheel. And, and um, so I walked in and it was quite empty, to be honest. And I was like, all right, that was it. a couple of hours till I was on. Yeah. But there's a band called The Illicits who, who signed by Alan McGee, you know, who sort of discovered yeah, Oasis. Of course, yeah. And Gary Ashton, who does a lot with Adidas Specialis, he helps them out and promotes them. So they have a big casual crowd to follow them. And they were on stage after me. So just as I was about to go on stage, about 15 to 20. The room had filled up. There was about 60, 70 people yeah. in, in a very small room. Then about another 15 to 20 casual Manchester and Blackburn sort of lads walk in. And uh, all of a sudden I'm thinking, shit. You know, <laughs> a few of my mates at the, at the back, not footy lads like me mates, but, you know, some Liverpool and Everton fans, but quite tanked up at that time, you know what I mean? And as I was talking to the sound engineer, I'm telling him I wanted a little bit more and he yeah. wants and stuff. And I hear one of them on the very front row, oh, for fuck's sake, a fucking scouser. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, oh no, like please. So I played my first tune, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go all out, my most balls out, and yeah. see the establishment tune I've got, it's called Change. And it's just about like, you know, 
what's put out there into society that's really all the bollocks. And the lyrics are quite strong in it, to say the least. And as soon as I finished the song, I, he's fucking all right. He's <laughs> I was like, he's right. So yeah. I then played the Cortina's song after it, yeah. which is obviously a Manchester band. So yeah. then it went off then and I had them. And I pl- right before I played Weekend in Paradise, I played I Am The Resurrection. And they fucking loved that. Yeah. So it, I, re- I really got a good reception and I was made up because I had people from not a Liverpool football club background coming up to me after the gig and saying that they enjoyed it and yeah. they're going to listen out for me tunes and maybe they might have had a look at me background and thought, no, in fact, fuck him, I'm not listening out for this tune. <laughs> but I hope, I hope that they've managed to, you know, that the gig was enough to, yeah. to make them look past it. And yeah, it was brilliant. So I'm also doing a tour in Feb, one in Liverpool, which is just over half sold now, which is the Arts Club. Yeah. Uh, Dublin, which is half sold, and London. Still tickets left for the London one, yeah. all in three days in Feb. But I'll be doing more about that after things yeah. have come out. Yeah, well, as Jamie says, the single's out Friday, so buy it, stream it, share it, uh, support him. It's an absolutely brilliant song. I can't wait to hear the fully produced version. But uh, thanks a lot for coming in. Nice one, John. Uh, Appreciate it, mate. See you soon. Last fan standing, Neil Atkinson and John Gibbons. And John, I believe one of our one of our subscribers uh, hit the jackpot, won the big prize. Yeah, it's uh, we've got a good news story. Yeah, um, obviously the 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 way the quizzes work is that you can play every night for seven o'clock. It's an LFC quiz, and you play for free, and you're playing to, to you know to try and be the last fan standing. But it's all for a bit of fun. But also on match day, uh, three hours before kickoff, to predict the quizzes for the big money. And someone got in touch with me last night, uh, oh, sorry, this morning, and said, do you know what happens with the money? I can't figure out how to withdraw it. And I said, oh, did you win last night? Don't get in touch today, and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, thanks. And I said, oh, how many of you's won? And he said, no, it was just me. So he was the single winner of £100. So, um, well done. Great watched work. the Reds win on pens, yep. um, bounced out the stadium, and then saw he'd won it. I wouldn't say who it is, just in case he owes someone money who's listening. Yeah, he's got to play cool. <laughs> Doesn't want his missus listening to this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He's, he's, he's spending that on um, on, yeah. on ale. Uh, yeah. Double fair play to him. So it's good to have an Anfield Rap winner. I mean, the Anfield Rap lot are doing well, but one of the, the negatives is, because I can't really play anymore, because we're, we're, we do the quizzes now as yeah. well. Um, so we do the predictive quizzes. So it's me and Neil hosting them, and we have a laugh doing it, and we do the one before. So I, I can't play as much, because when you're doing the quiz, it's a bit bang on. Yeah, it's moody. Um, so I'm not. I, so there's an Anfield Rap group and an Anfield Rap leaderboard that I'm no longer top of. Oh, that's a real shame for you on a personal <laughs> level. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe under a pseudonym, maybe John Gubbins will make a comeback. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll look out for him. Look out for John Gubbins. We've got Will Leighton on the line. He's doing our quiz with us now. So it's it's www.lastfanstanding.app. Uh, that's all on there for you to be able to go from there and do download the app and play. And this one will be going out on the 1st of November. Uh, do bear that in mind. So you may, be, may get to cheat a little bit here and get a bit of advanced knowledge. Uh, will, the current lead is five. Five is it, John? Yeah, five. Yeah, two, 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 play, two plays got five. Two tied on five. Will, are you confident? Let's talk about six, baby. Hey, love it. <laughs> Marvellous stuff. Uh, it's going to be really embarrassing when you go to five, go at five now, but let's move forward. Um Question one, Liverpool play Aston Villa this weekend. Who is Liverpool's next Premier League game against after that? Is it Man United or Man City? Man City. Yeah, flying. Not even going to tolerate that one as any sort of pause for comic time. Or anything <laughs> like Go on, John. Okay, next one. Which position did the Reds finish in the 2017-18 season? Was it third or fourth? Uh, it was, yeah, they did the last day, didn't they? Yeah. It was nervy at half time. Yeah. I think I watched yeah. it with you, Neil, which is quite rare for us. We don't watch as many games as people together that people imagine, but yeah, they did the last day. Nil and a half time, then Junior Wijnaldum, Thunderbolt. Yep, that's the that one. The one. 
Um, which Liverpool player's full name is Fabio Enrique Tavares? Is it Firmino, Fabinho or Adrian? Uh, Fabinho. It is Fabinho. Three out of three. Go on, John. I mainly know that for his missus. Yeah, of course, she's, yeah, she's yeah. She's on, on, on Insta- and the best thing on Instagram. She just loves Liverpool. And she, the Reds. She's into it. Uh, next one, name two of the three, other three Brazilians in the LFC first team squad. Name two of the uh, other three. Bobby Firmino and Alisson. Yeah, that'll do. Flying. Uh, number five. Uh, so this is the tie so far. Bruce Grobelar was born in which country? New Zealand, Australia, or South Africa? Uh, South Africa. Flying, okay. Uh, number six, John. For the Alvay lead so far, uh, did Bruce Gobelar win a European Cup winner's medal with his time at Liverpool, yes or no? Uh, yeah, 84. <laughs> he's right, yeah, spaghetti legs. Absolute flares going off here as he's got six. <laughs> flares going off. Uh, go on, John. Oh, no, it's me, sorry. Go on. Steven Gerrard tops one of these Premier League categories for Liverpool. Which one? Appearances, goals, red cards, or wins? Uh, wins. It's not. It's red cards. It's red, red cards. cards. Yes, you guess. <laughs> oh, it's red cards. That's heartbreaking. I was uh, honestly, it's tough. That I mean, it's fair to say that ramps up from six to seven. <laughs> well, I I thought as well, like. I thought it was easier first, but I noticed it's Premier League, isn't it? Yeah. So it's Premier League here. So I thought, well, Callaghan's got the most appearances, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. Rushy's got the most goals. But with it being Premier League, is is a bit of a tricky one there. But it is a it is red cards. Love love no the one red. Just gets sent off in the day, did he? <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> there is that, that is also true. Two foot behind someone, you were all right. Um, do you fancy this weekend, Will against Villa? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I think we're these kind of. With no disrespect, lesser teams that are coming up that used to cause us a bit of the willies. I think uh, that, that's long gone now, isn't it? I think we just expect to uh, turn up and I wouldn't say swat them aside, but you know, good professional performance. And yeah, if, if yeah. the Reds turn up against anybody, then it doesn't matter what the other team do, does it? If we're there, then we win. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. And good professional performance is what we're looking for for this one. Listen, you're top of the leaderboard for now. Six out of ten. Uh, there'll be a bit of merch coming to you. John will sort that with you. Thanks for coming and playing and uh, playing last fan standing, everyone. Yeah, um, just to bear, bear in mind as well that me and Neil are hosting the show tonight. That's Friday night at seven o'clock. You've got to be online at seven to play that. Or then tomorrow, the predicted quiz uh, for the Villa game. Anytime, three hours before. So so make sure you, you can get your, your answers in three hours before. And you too, like one of our listeners this week, can win 100 quid. is isn't bad. Take it easy. Joined by Greg Evans from The Athletic. Uh, the Athletic we've partnered with at the Anfield Wrap. It's theathletic.co.uk forward slash uh, the Anfield Wrap if you want to sign up and read lots of fantastic stuff. And one of the things I read over the course of the weekend after Aston Villa's game against Manchester City was Greg on the line talking about the fact that Villa have conceded a hell of a lot of second half goals this season and trying to get to the bottom of why. And Greg, it seems like it's something that the squad, the side, the manager is aware of. But the why appears to be a tiny little bit more complicated. Yeah, I'm still trying to put put my finger on it myself, really. I, I asked the manager about it, Dean Smith. Um, he insisted that it wasn't down to a lack of tiredness or a lack of fitness in the legs of the, of the players. Uh, I asked some of the players and they said the same. So, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's a difficult one to sort of establish why they keep conceding in the second half. I mean, Villa have got this 4-3-3 formation where they, they try to press high and quick. Um, and I just wonder whether 
the energy levels do drop off a little bit uh, in the second half, and maybe it's even a concentration thing or or even a mentality thing. Look, I mean, this is a it's a new squad, isn't it? A, a newly promoted team that's been put together. They're still relatively young. The players um, are over ten games in, but. Um, the players are still getting to know each other a little bit and some of them are getting to know the league. And I think there are mitigating circumstances. OK, Villa have conceded 13 of their 16 goals uh, in the second half of games, which is which is what I wrote earlier in the week. But nine of those have come against Man City, Arsenal and Tottenham away from home. So um, it, maybe it's, it's one to certainly keep an eye on because there is definitely a pattern uh, emerging there. But... Um, you know, we'll just see as the game go as the games go on whether whether anything changes. Do you think that, that you mentioned the three sides you mentioned there? Do you think there's something where those sides you say they press high and that's backed up by the stats? It's backed up by the stats last week. Mm. And by the way, I had a little look at the stats for the Manchester City game, and the pressures are about the same for both halves. We're using the stats provider we use. But one of the things that made me think was, do you think that perhaps the the, the better players, the the better coaches, they're able to sort of just work it out a tiny little bit that Villa are going about it. They're sticking with what's worked for them in the first half. Second half kicks off, but by now everyone's got 45 minutes experience of playing against this and maybe just maybe the better players the smarter players are able to play the way around a little bit easier yeah I think I think what you mentioned there at the you know the, the better players I think that's the key I, I don't necessarily think it's um, a managerial or, or tactical um, change that, that, that affects it I think it's just that, that the quality of player comes through um, if, if I take the three games individually the three away games against the you know usual top six teams um Tottenham Villa just run out of steam. It was the first game of the season. Uh, you know they, they they put so much into the first half that towards the end of the second half they were just uh, looking a little bit leggy and tired and jaded. Um, and then it was a it was an error from Jack Grealish that that Tottenham punished. The second half against Arsenal was probably the the most frustrating. I'd have thought I'd have thought for the players um, and certainly for the manager because Arsenal had gone down to ten men. Uh, Villa were tw- went went ahead twice uh, and were two and up at the break so they actually lost that game 3-2 um, I, just, I just remember Gwen Doozy started to really come into the game and started to just mm. dictate the play in midfield and Villa just dropped off and sat too deep um, and just allowed the pressure onto them um, and I spoke to Tyro Mings after that game and I said you know what, what, what's happened there you were you were in pretty much in control in that first half you were ahead you got the man advantage and he just said look you know it's uh Basically, what we needed to do was just continue playing the way we did in the first half and continue to cause them problems. But they just it may, maybe it's just an instinct and a natural thing to sit back and defend when you've got the goal lead. Um, and then at Man City, it was a case of um, I just think that I just I remember I remember the first half, the second half kicked off and Jesus running uh, and and it had to be restarted because Jesus had run into the uh, the Villa, Villa half too soon and it was just like the Man City players were just so fired up to to make amends for a, a pretty poor first half um, and then their, their quality just shone, shone through it was, was you, you could pick the faults in three goals and say okay the first goal was lack of concentration really early into the into the second half the second goal shouldn't have stood because of the, uh, it was the wrong VAR decision um, please let's not talk about VAR because I'm fed up with it already <laughs> we don't need to <laughs> And then the third, and then the third goal was just um, you know it was just City showing their quality and defensive troubles and lapses for Villa. But look, they're elite teams, and and the results against those type of teams and Liverpool at this uh, this weekend won't define Villa's season. 
They won't define Villa's season. It's worth pointing that out. The Villa's last home game, they absolutely batter uh, Brighton and Hove Albion. They, they beat them two goals to one, but they, they create a lot of opportunities, Villa. And some better opportunities. There's been times this season we've spoken that Villa have been having a fair few attempts at home, but the quality of those attempts hasn't always been there. But against Brighton, uh, they, do, they don't just find the way to play. They keep playing, they keep working, and they keep creating quality opportunities. And in many senses, that may well be the manager's, the, the performance he's happiest with of the season, that win against Brighton. Yeah, uh, to be honest, with you, I think the the previous one, um, the five one win away at, at Norwich, would have been the most um, <laughs> the most pleasing and, re- and rewarding. Um, but yeah, uh, okay, the, the, those games against Brighton, you know, the likes of Brighton at home at Villa Park are, are going to be Villa's bread and butter this season. If, if they win those games, they'll stay up. And the fact that they just kept digging it out and and and, and scored a ninety fourth minute winner, um, you know, would have been very pleasing. Yeah. It's one where it was why I thought that game was the digging out part. It's worth pointing out they go one nil down, and from that point, in fact, it's not dissimilar actually to other the time. It's about twenty minutes in, but it's not dissimilar to what happens at Liverpool against Tottenham at the weekend, where they go one nil down. Uh, yeah. They haven't really created much before they go one nil down, and then all of a sudden the, the the job just clarifies itself, doesn't it, in the Villa players' minds, and they they bang on the door, bang on the door, get the equaliser just before half time bang on the door, bang on the door, bang on the door, and the tone's set, and it's all Villa, isn't it, through that game, after they go 1-0 down? Yeah, it, it just shows it just shows the character in, and, and that there is a resilience there. As, as we've just mentioned, you know, the, the second-half performances haven't, in general, necessarily been good, um, but that one sort of brought the trend, and, uh, you know, it, it does just show that they have got that fight in them to um, to, to see off the teams that are going to be in and around them in, in the division. Um, I just think we, I think the Liverpool game coming up at the weekend is going to be it's just it's going to be a different type of game. Obviously, you know Liverpool are going to dominate possession. I'd have thought, and um, you know, Villa are going to have to be a lot more clever with their and and, and certainly um, ruthless with their with their attacks because there's, I can't see them having anywhere near as many chances as they have in other uh, home games just because of you know the way Liverpool set up. <clears throat> what they have got though, Villa, which works well for them and it's interesting that they've got firstly one little thing that may maybe worth pointing out that works well for them is they've had Manchester City and Liverpool back to back and sometimes I think what's difficult for some managers is preparing for Liverpool and City they're almost unique challenges compared to a lot of the rest of the league well Villa have got the two games so they've got the data in that regard but the other thing that they've got is they've got lads who love to carry the ball Grealish and McGinn there you know both of them are Good, good in possession, a good at getting putting the foot on the ball, a good at shifting at 10, 15, 20 yards up the pitch, progressing Villa and giving them a way out. I expect, do you think we'll see a bit of that at home uh, for Villa against Liverpool at the weekend? Yeah, definitely. The, the, the two players you mentioned um, you know, are, are great at collecting the ball and winning the ball in their own half and then driving forward and either um, you know, creating chances or winning fouls in the opposition uh, half. So, that, those two players are, are key and crucial for Villa. Whether whether Jack Grealish will be fit, whether he'll make it or not, uh, we don't know at this stage. Um, suffered a calf uh, injury against um, uh, in the city. Game. The, 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 the last ten minutes of the city game. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. So he he, he come off injured. We, we don't know yet. If he doesn't make it, it's going to be a massive, massive loss for Villa because. He was, you know, unbelievable against uh, Brighton in the last home game. So he's a big player for Villa. But if, if he doesn't make it, they've still got John McGinn, still got Trezeguet on the uh, on the right wing, who's also 
uh, excellent at, at getting the ball in his own half, driving forward at pace. Uh, just not, not quite as good in possession. Uh, his decision-making isn't quite as good as the other two. He tends to lose the ball before he should lay it off. But the fact that he does actually win the ball quite often in his own half is something that Villa will be um, you know, looking to use against Liverpool because that's going to be the key for them, I think, is they're going to suffer. They're going to be camped in their own half for long periods, I would have thought. So they would really need to make the most of their counter-attacks. The, the the key question there is the the form slash performance of Wesley, who's had a bit of a curate egg of a season so far. He's there's been some games where he's been absolutely irresistible. He dominated Everton, uh, which is never never a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, he really got them under the caution and was terrific in that game. But in other games, he's disappeared a tiny little bit at times, and I, it may it may be that he's just taken some getting used to this 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 league as a whole, but. Villa, maybe not even against Liverpool. Villa could probably just do with them putting five or six good games together, couldn't they? Yeah, I think I think if you look at his statistics, statistically he's, he's not bad. You know, four goals in ten games, uh, a couple of assists. Um, that's not a bad return, really, for, for for a player playing in the Premier League for the for the first time, only twenty two years old, and playing for a newly promoted squad, uh, team. So. Mm. Statistics alone, he's doing fine. But I think you're right to to to, to um, highlight his performances because some of them just you know, have have been under par. And I'll be honest, I've been looking at him, thinking, you know, is this guy good enough? Is this guy gonna 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 do it on a permanent basis for Villa? Because I haven't quite seen enough from him yet. He's had some really good games. The Everton one, as you mentioned, he was great. At Norwich also. When, when Villa won five one, but again missed a penalty to to uh, to top off what would have been a brilliant day and give him his hat trick. Um, so yeah, he's just going to need a little bit of time, I think. If I don't want to judge him too early because I just, I just don't think it's fair when you when you compare. You know, Villa paid twenty two million for him. If you look at say Joel Linton, double the price. Alera um, West Ham again double the price, and you know he's got he's got a better goal record than both of them put together. So. Um, We've got to give him a little bit of time, but yeah, the, the thing with Villa, I think the, the main issue was not signing another striker in, in mm. uh, the last transfer window. They, they left themselves quite short. Keenan Davis and Jonathan Codger are the other two strikers. Neither of them have played in the Premier League before. So for a newly promoted team going into a Premier League season with three strikers only and three strikers that haven't played in the Premier League, um, I just think it was a little bit risky. OK, give me a prediction for the game on Saturday. Uh, 0-3 Liverpool Salah hat-trick Wow, OK very specific uh, excellent stuff <laughs> indeed uh, excellent stuff I'm going to captain him and my dream team as well Oh good it's, it's, it's becoming crystal clear uh, back in the thing back in the thing that you wouldn't mind seeing come together although I'm sure you'd rather have a Villa win uh, thank you very much to Greg uh, covering for The Athletic as I said before theathletic.co.uk forward slash the Amphil app to sign up to that enjoy the rest of the show Fabulous stuff there right the way through. Listen at the Anfield app. We very much want you to spread the word of what we do. And I can't think of a better example of this weekend, to be honest with you. You've got a five-all draw to talk about, followed by James Milner, who is Liverpool's vice-captain, followed by the wonderful Jamie Webster. Greg Evans letting you know what's happening at Aston Villa from The Athletic. All brilliant stuff. Do tell people. Hopefully we won't make a mess of this segment now uh, with Lizzie Doyle, Stu Wright and Josh Sexton because the bar is pretty high. Uh, and the bar being pretty high is the concern around this game, Josh. It's a game that Liverpool obviously should win, but it's a game that Liverpool will feel as though they pretty much need to win, and I'm aware of the fact that that's a bit mad, uh, given the, the start of the season that they've had, but it'd be a real shame now to go into the game against Manchester City next weekend and not be six clear. I think that that's the one that it's all about, just get 
this is the game before the game. It's sometimes edgy, that sort of thing. But if Liverpool just get into that 1-6 clear and then whatever happens against City happens, but to do that, they've got to beat Villa. It just feels like an, another you know example of us maybe doing our own heads in, doesn't it? I think we've asked we've asked so many questions about the mentality of this side and, and, and they've come through sort of all tests and all, all manner of different tests as well. And I think you know this is one where if you look at it on, from the outside looking in, it's, it's, a, it's a game where they play at the same time as City, which is probably the first time that's happened since since Wolves last season. Um, so you, you know you might be thinking, oh, I wonder there whether there's a, a mentality effect in that. But it's so early in the season for these lads that it's all just about winning games right now. So that's the only thing they're focusing on and and sort of managing their way through through these games that they've got coming up. And I think Villa's just going to be another one of them. I think the, the only time the season where Liverpool's mentality has maybe been lacking was at Old Trafford. And I think there's there's sort of ulterior factors going into that because of obviously the, the sort of hoodoo that there is around Old Trafford and and the, this sort of faux rivalry we're still building up with Manchester United now. And, and maybe that's an example of you know us fans doing our own heads and, and having a negative impact on the performance. But I think going into this one, I've got no real concerns about about whether Liverpool will be able to, to come through it because I think it's it's just a, a, another one of these tests which we can blow up but ultimately these players are good enough to come through it. They, they've enjoyed fixtures like this. I think you can possibly, uh, and we'll know more come the end of the campaign, Stu, possibly put Villa in a basket with Burnley and Sheffield United to an extent in terms of difficult place to go but Liverpool work out how to do the difficult place to go and that's not to be complacent about it. I think the, the main thing about this is that Liverpool will need to work hard I think if Liverpool work hard, they get a result. If they're not complacent, I think they get a result. I think the enemy here is either very, very bad luck or the idea of an overall sense that it's all a bit too easy. And this side, to me, doesn't look like it's quite got complacency in it. No, I, I, I don't think... I don't think it's going to be an easy game, but I'm really confident about it. And you, you listen, Neil, you see me before a game, you know, most home games uh, and, you know, we'll have a chat and I'm, I'm very cautious, you know, as particularly as we get close to a game. Um, I do very much err on the side of, oh, you know, it could be one of those days and what have you. And I get into my own head about stuff, but, but I haven't really with this one. And I, and I don't feel that's out of complacency because I, I think they'll give us a good game. But I think it'll give it, because they'll give us a good game, I think it'll suit us. I think it'll, it'll, um, they'll make us, they'll keep us honest. I think in the game, they'll, I think they'll, um, it'll have a, a decent tempo. You almost it. want them to engage us as much as possible early, don't you? I think they will. You? I think they will. Yeah. And I, I think it'll probably be a good game to watch. Um, but I feel, I don't feel threatened at all. I don't, I don't see where the threat is. It's the obvious one from Grealish, but I, I I don't really see where the threat is coming from for Liverpool in this game. I don't I don't I just don't I just I, you know to go back on what I said at the start. I I'm not in my own head in this in this one, and um, I I almost feel like it's almost like a little little holiday, um, and it's quite dangerous. But I, I I do feel like that we've had quite a lot of intense games. We've played Tottenham, we've played Leicester, we've got Man City in you know coming up the week after. And I almost feel like this is this is a good game. We can go we can go to Villa Park, have a good game of footy, come away with three points, job done, sound. And, and I'm just quite confident about it. We've, I think that, as you said, Josh, these lads now have proved to us time and time again that they've got the resolve. Um, and it, it just feels like we could. Because win forever. I think it's an important point that Stu makes there, by the way, in terms of saying, you know, you can be confident about a game and still don't think it's going to be easy. You can be confident about the, the results of a game as much as you can be about the, about the performance that Liverpool are going to put in. And I think Liverpool will put in a good performance, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Liverpool are going to, you know, sweep Aston Villa aside or that Aston Villa is going to be an easy challenge because, as, as you've both said, I don't expect it to be, but I do expect Liverpool to come out on top. 
You expect to see the other thing, well, Liverpool, uh, Lizzie, is that you feel as though you can pick the side now. Um, I don't expect there to be any real surprises in selection. I could be wrong, I could be proven wrong, but it's difficult to en- to envisage something which isn't, you know, unless there's an injury concern around, for instance, Mo Salah that we've not been informed about. Uh, you know, you're expecting to see Alisson in goal. The back four will be the back four. Lovren presumably starts in the absence of Matip. Uh, the front three will be the front three. It'll be almost certainly Fabinho, Wijnaldum and Henderson, despite this through looming threat of the yellow card. For a while, I've thought, so oh, he won't play Fabinho against Villa. He won't play Fabinho against Villa. Now I think he will play Fabinho against Villa. Do you know what? I was the same until today, and now I'm thinking he's going to play Fabinho against Villa. I'm thinking he might might take him off quite early. Though. I think um, I, I could see that happening. I think with this team, and it's like you say, it's not being complacent. I think you just know what you're getting. Like you say, you know the team. Like the, the fact that... Okay, Matip's injured. Uh, we've we've clearly seen that he sh- he chooses Lovren, so we, we know that we we know the back four. We pretty much know our midfield, and we know the the front three, and we know what they can do, and we know what they're capable of. And as much as Aston Villa might give us a good game, they're not they're not Man City. Do you know what I mean? They're not someone that we should really be panicking about because we know what we do, and we do it very very well, and we've done it perfect up to this point. And Villa Park, we've got a really, really good record at Villa Park. And I know it's been a long time since we've played, but Liverpool have always played well there. I just think we're just going to have too much for them. I really do. I've had a look at the Villa's form recently in the last five games. Inconsistent. I think it's like they've won two, drawn two, lost one. I think we're going to have far, far too much for them. Um, I don't know whether it'll be comfortable scoreline-wise, but there's just... I don't, I don't know. I'm just not panicking at all. I think it's because... What you're saying is that it's the it's the Lumen City thing. It's even though we're playing Aston Villa on Saturday as fans, and I don't want to speak for everyone. I think we're all just thinking, yeah, okay, but Man City, it's Man City, it's Man City. But and the it, players just, can't do that, can they? The players they have got to be in this in this they game. They have to be, and that's what made me think that Fabinho will play because if Klopp all of a sudden doesn't play Fabinho for the first time this season and saying it's because we want to keep you from Man City. Well, that's all of a sudden taken away. Sending a message maybe, yeah. It's literally saying, I'm not looking at Villa, I'm looking at City. When all Steve's done and what he's done so well is keeping their heads focused on one game at a time. So. It also probably shows that, you know, I think one of the things you can say about Klopp is that it's got an ultimate trust in these players and I think if you don't play for Bino in a game because there's a chance he might get a yellow card, you, you're, almost, you're almost yeah. saying to the player that you don't trust him not to get a yellow card in a game. Or you're saying to Gini Wijnaldum or Jordan Henderson, I, I wouldn't trust you to be able to play that role against Manchester City. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, there's there's loads of sort of adverse effects that could have. So so I've sort of always expected Fabinho to start. To be fair, I didn't really think that would ever be an issue. I, I just I just thought he would get the booking last week. Would, was 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 what I was thinking <laughs> to be honest. Um, it's it's once you where the final sort of bid on it from a, both a Liverpool and a Villa perspective is Villa aren't when I compared them before to Burnley and Sheffield United. Well, one of the things Sheffield United did do is they played football against us. One of the things that Burnley don't do is play football against us. Um, and I do sort of think, and by the way, that's perfectly respectable. In fact, it's probably the right thing to do. The thing about Villa is they don't necessarily yet have an inbuilt gnarliness of this is what you do against the Premier League bot top six. It might have helped them having City last weekend in that you get to prepare for two games as one. You get to work on some stuff. You get the video back. There'll be stuff to take from that. I think there may be a little element of that, but pretty much, you know, this is an Aston Villa side full of players who haven't really dealt with anything like this before in their lives. Yeah, um, I, do you know what I hadn't thought about that really? What you said about um, playing City before us, I think that the, yeah, there's something in that. 
Um, see, I'm not, I am getting in my head already now. <laughs> it doesn't take much, doesn't take Making much. I always do it on the shows as well, it's because you say it out loud and you realise. Um, yeah, um, but, but we are, listen, although there's there's similarities between us and City in terms of quality and in certain aspects of our style of play and our tempo, there's, there's also real differences and they will not have played a team like us before. Uh, they will. We, they will not have had to deal with the very unique challenges that that, that we present teams with. You know, from our fullbacks, um, you know, as as well as the front three. Um, so, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I, I think it's a a game that if if I was an Aston Villa player, um, part, you know, part of me, I'd be you know, thinking home against these players, and you'd be very much looking forward to it. But in the back of my head, I'd be thinking this could unravel very, very quickly. Um, what you said there, Lizzie, you know, score score line wise, I expect Liverpool to to win by a couple of goals. Yeah, I, I think that we'll will there'll be a couple of goals difference between us and them. Whether whether that be a, I wouldn't be surprised by a solid two 0 mm. and I wouldn't be surprised by a by a three one. Um, I, I think. When I think of Aston Villa and I think of Sheffield United, I would much rather be playing Aston Villa than Sheffield United. I look at Sheffield United and I can see, I, I know exactly yeah. what you're about. I can see what you're trying. Only to, I only have to watch Sheffield United for five minutes and think, you are very well drilled. You know what you're about. This is not something new for you in terms of the way you're playing as a group of players. You know what you're about. You're comfortable with that. Um, and I expect Sheffield United to do all right this season. I certainly don't expect them to be in the bottom three um, come the come the last few games of the season. Whereas with Villa, I don't know. I'm looking at Villa and going, I'm not sure. You, you might do. You might finish about fifteenth, but you know what? You might finish eighteenth, nineteenth. I, I I haven't quite worked it out with them yet um, and I think there's probably something to that really because I'm not sure where the, 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 their style uh, and how they're going to adapt to the Premier League is, is, is fully in place yet uh, Stu fancies by two goals Josh? Um, I think it's going to be tight similar to Sheffield United but I only think that because on, on the sort of point of you know Liverpool and City being different challenges the way that Liverpool and City take games away from teams is completely different so you watch City against uh, against Villa last week and the way that City take game away from you is by physically you know once they score that first goal second, third it, it's like it's like you know death by a thousand cuts almost in the way that they just quickly you know the game's finished whereas Liverpool score that first goal and then they just manage the head off the game like they, they absolutely manage everything out of the game and, and Villa will, will sort of you know maybe start to get their confidence up later in the game maybe even get the goal like Sheffield United it did but I fully expect Liverpool to come out on top what do you fancy I reckon about yeah maybe a 2-1 two, maybe 2-1 two, yeah. Liverpool uh, Lizzie goes for Sheffield United didn't score I think you might be thinking of Norwich's later consolation Sheffield, was, Possibly, Sheffield yeah. United finished 1-0 yeah. uh, just in my head there I was like oh, did, did I forget a game did I forget a goal <laughs> uh, anyway 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 thank you very much indeed to Josh uh, to Stu and to Lizzie uh, Jamie James uh, and Greg as well and John Gibbons as well uh, and Andy Heaton and Ian Ryan actually let's do the full cast uh, thank you very much for you for listening as well do spread the word for us do download our app do enjoy yourselves this is the best Liverpool team you're ever going to watch it now also picks a team of youngsters who draw 5-all and win 5-4 on penalties. Divock Origi and Curtis Jones. Sports Social Podcast Network.